Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to the Cod Cabin. We're finally back after a little break, though it feels more like a longer break at this point. I'm Adam Bass. Joining me, as always, is Jack Leary and Jesse Hanen. Today, we're going to be talking about the conventions, the Democratic convention and the Republican convention in Massachusetts. And Jesse, you were actually at one of the conventions, the Democratic one, that took place uh, last week to two weeks ago. What was it like there? I wanted to go, but I had other uh, business to take care of. Um, it was great. I met a lot of great people, a lot of great activists, uh, great candidates, uh, Chris Dempsey, Maura Healy, Eric Lesser, Tanisha Sullivan, uh, Bill Galvin, just a lot of great people. Um, but of course, as always, it's the old boys club. Well, to be fair, there were, were a, a lot of women activists there. But I say old boys club um, in the meaning that it's activists, it's not really your median voter, and the results from the convention um, I don't think should really be extrapolated from too much. No. And um, obviously all candidates should be given the opportunity to make their case to voters in the next few months mm -hmm. um, before they vote on September 6th. Right. God, it feels like it's still so far away, even though it's, it's July, August, three months at, almost at this point. Um, but yeah, the convention came and passed, and this is where the delegates get to come together and select a candidate that they would recommend to voters uh, participating in the primary as, hey, this is who we recommend and we will endorse for the ballot. This is also a place where several other candidates have their chance to get on the ballot. Uh, and there was only two candidates that did not make the ballot, I believe, and those were two lieutenant governor candidates. These were uh, uh, State Senator Adam Hines and businessman Brett, Brett Bayo. Um, or Brett Barrow, Bureau, excuse, Bureau, Bureau, excuse yeah. me. Um, yeah, those two came in uh, set, uh, fourth and fifth, respectively, whereas uh, Salem Mayor Kim Driscoll, State, uh, state Rep Tam Dr. Tammy Guevara came in um, second. Gubea, Tammy Guevara, yeah. sorry. Yeah, thank you. I apologize. And Eric Lesser, State Senator Eric Lesser, came in third. Uh, so, yeah, let's talk about the results. I know we're jumping to Lieutenant Governor first, but um, I, I was not surprised that uh, Kim Driscoll would take first place with about 41.8%, according to uh, Mike Dion of soon-to-be Axios. Um, the, uh, endorsements matter more in this kind of uh, situation rather than money, because Eric Lesser has been raising the most money in this race. So yeah, it, it seems to me that name cred and endorsements matter more. So your thoughts on that, Jesse and Jack? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think if you looked at the, the people who are elected delegates to this convention, you'll see a lot of people who know their state reps, know their state senators, and value their endorsements. And I think you saw a lot of endorsements go to Kim Driscoll because she's been talking about her executive experience. And as Mayor of Salem, she's in a good spot geographically, close to Boston, um, within that you know, sphere of discussion where she's um, considered um, a strong candidate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Jack, your thoughts? Yeah, I think in terms of um, <clears throat> money not mattering, you're completely right. I actually found uh, a pretty funny trend when I was going through OCPF data, uh, but right in advance of this uh, recording. In the convention, 
with the exception of the governor's race, uh, the candidate with the most money in every race failed to win the endorsement. Really? Um, yeah, Lesser uh, has raised the most money in the lieutenant governor's race. Campbell raised the most money in the attorney general's race. Uh, Dempsey or Desaglio in the auditor's race, and Galvin in the secretary of the Commonwealth race. So it really does go to show that it it's that focus on a field program connecting to delegates that matters more. And I also think that there's kind of a inverse relationship between fundraising strength and how much attention campaigns give to the convention, because if you're not able to have um, reliance on traditional fundraising to boost your campaign through paid media, you're going to, in order to run a viable campaign, you have to put in more work towards getting that grassroots support at the activist level. Uh, and the convention is the convention's fertile ground for that. Yeah, especially since Boston, the Boston area is an incredibly expensive media market. You have to raise tons and tons of money just to get put ads out there. Um, and, and I do wonder all I was saying was that, you know, she's in that 128 sphere at Kim Driscoll. And she's going to have the ability to go out, talk to more people, where Eric Lesser is going to need to spend time and gas just to go up to other places. So obviously the convention is one universe and the actual campaign is another uh, do you think that um, being in distance to Boston will matter more for Driscoll than it will for other candidates? Jack, you want to take this one? Yeah, I, I don't, you know, I obviously think that it's definitely more helpful to be, you know, inside the beltway, so to speak, than outside of it. But I think uh, Driscoll's win at the convention can be attributed to a lot more than just geographic convenience for her, because you see that apart from the North Shore and apart from Boston, she also cleaned up considerably in the South Shore and even, you know, winning Cape and Islands. Um, and I, I would say that the, the map, even though it is kind of Eastern focused for Driscoll in terms of the state Senate districts she did best in, I think that's more of a product of Lesser and Hines, you know, being unduly favored in Western Mass and, you know, Gouveia uh, in the Acton area rather than Driscoll having some sort of strength in the Boston area, if that makes sense. So I, I think she really did, you know, by cleaning up with endorsements and also with the ground game that she put to the convention. Um, I don't think that that's something that you can just write off as, oh, she's the closest to Boston candidate. That's why she did so well at the convention. Mm-hmm. And I do think um, Kim Driscoll has a very strong message going to the primary, which is She's been mayor for a very long time. She has the executive experience needed to be lieutenant governor and potentially be governor if more Healy were, or um, Sonia Chung-Diaz were to go on to do mm-hmm. um, other things. Um, and I also think that um, this is no hit against Dr. Guvea, but a public health message this year it's not going to be very potent when COVID has been dying down and is dropping down the list of priorities. And for Eric Lesser, um, I love the guy, but convincing people to vote for him because of Western Mass or because of East-West Rail will be a tough sell. Right, especially since, um, from what I understand, talking to uh, Mark Healy, Sonny Chang Diaz, and even um, Republican candidate Jeff Deal, who was at the State House talking against the um, uh, driver license bill. Um, but that's a story for another time. Uh, he endorsed East West Rail. And Charlie Baker is saying, you know what, let's get it done. Governor Charlie Baker. 
it sort of feels like it's getting closer to an inevitability at this point. And to um, borrow a metaphor, it's sort of like a slow moving train. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's sort of the kind of governor's race. Um, but where are we from not talking about, you know, the main event, the governor's race? Uh, Maura Healy, Attorney General Maura Healy, pretty much swept House, took about 71% of the vote at the, at the uh, convention with her rival, State Senator Sonia Chang Diaz of the Second Suffolk District, um, taking about 28%. And what I found interesting was that most of her vote share came from Franklin County. Now, for those not from Massachusetts, that is the county that borders Vermont. So as many of our friends like to call it, Southern Vermont. So let's talk about, you know, that sort of area where she did well in. Uh, I don't think that that's uh, too ridiculous. You know, that's just generally a very progressive area of the state. And, you know, most of her delegates didn't come from there. That's just the area where she punched right. the most above her average. But, you know, we saw in the 2020 Democratic presidential primary, you know, that out west was fertile ground for Bernie Sanders, uh, for Elizabeth Warren, too. I, I believe Franklin County and um, maybe Hampton County as well might have been the only towns outside of the inner Boston suburbs that Elizabeth Warren won. Uh, that's right. I'm looking at the map right now. Yeah, so I don't think that's surprising at all. Uh, I, I really don't think there's too much to say about the governor's race. I mean, you would think Sonia Chang Diaz, obviously running as the more progressive candidate in this party, uh, uh, in this primary. And as Jesse said earlier, you know, the convention is the place where a lot of those progressive activists gather. And, you know, if, if you can't make a huge splash at the convention when you're already the underdog in the polls, when you're already way behind in fundraising and endorsements. I mean, yeah. like we've been saying for months, it's an inevitability, but Sonia Chang Diaz did not perform um, how she needed to at the right. convention. I, don't think. I, I will say this. Um, there was a thread by uh, WGBH uh, political re reporter and uh, broadcaster Adam Riley sort of asking the question about, you know, why is, you know, SDC, uh, Sonia Chang Diaz, excuse me, you know, just not getting as much attention. And you would think that all the progressive progressives would flock to her. And to, to counter that, I would say, I would look at an article posted on Politico by none other than Lisa Kaczynski. And she sort of gives the argument that, you know, Democrats want to win the gubernatorial race. Um, tech, they, they tend to go to Republicans very often. Um, you know, the last time that they won uh, the governor's seat was back in 2006 and 2010 with the ball Patrick. Um, and we're entering a period where, you know, people are considering the Massachusetts GOP to be in not so much of a strong place, sort of shifting away from the managerial uh, style of Governor Baker and uh, Governor uh, Cuccinelli. Um, and instead leaning more towards a nationalized uh, platform that's embraced by uh, Chair Jim Lyons. So I would say, you know, at, and even though both uh, Cheng Diaz and Healy pulled very well against Deal and uh, his rival, Chris Doherty, um, I would say that they don't wanna take any risks with this. I think, yeah, I think you're right on, on that. Uh, I think another part of that is, you know, progressives aren't really breaking that hard for Sonia Chang Diaz, because more human herself is not a moderate. Before 2020, before Ed Markey came onto the scene as this uber progressive um, firebrand senator, um, she was probably the number two progressive Democrat 
in Massachusetts right after, of course, Elizabeth Warren. And you know, she she earned she earned that cred over multiple years. In 2014, she was the outsider candidate. She was the progressive candidate that the establishment didn't want winning. So you know, I, I think Sonia Chin Diaz is a good candidate. I think she's um, serving her party well by giving people, um, giving some voters at least uh, what they want, especially with Medicare for All stuff like that. But at the end of the day, Maura Healy is not the moderate Democrat they think she is. Mm -hmm. And and I also sort of want to expand, this, is sort of, this can be a conversation for later, but I, I do think that the Massachusetts progressive is not the same, it's like, but progressives are not a monolith, right? And even there's like different shades of gray of, a progress, of what a progressive means. Um, the Massachusetts progressive voter is going to be different than the New York progressive voter, which is going to be different from the California progressive voter. Um, uh, a progressive uh, congresswoman like a AOC in New York is going to be somewhat different with, uh, instead of her colleague, Ayanna Presley from Massachusetts 7th. They share similar ideals, but I believe sort of the way they approach things and think of things can be very different. So I know a lot of people like to do that and they do this with everything nowadays. And I know that comes down to like human nature being like, oh, let's put other people one so we can understand it. And yeah, that works in the short term, but in the long term, you're going to run into some trouble. And speaking of long terms, I think one of the big long term races we're going to notice here, and the closest uh, rate or I guess results in the from the convention was the auditors race. Uh, Chris Dempsey, uh, public transit activist, uh, gained, uh, got about fifty two percent of the vote, whereas state senator from Methuen, uh, Diana Dezaglio, got forty eight percent. And a lot of people uh, who supported Dempsey while they were happy. I saw like one uh, council member from, I believe it was, oh, I, I don't even remember where it was, but they, they were really upset. They were like, wow, what a disappointment from Dempsey. I am like, it, these two have somewhat lowish name recognition. What do you expect? It, it just sort of surprised me. So your thoughts on how close this race was? Man, I don't, I don't know what, um the expectations should have been because this is this race is so low on people's priorities it might just be the bottom of the bottom and i don't i don't even know how you can come up with like an estimate of what each candidate was going to get but like I, the general feeling was that uh, dempsey was going to win the endorsement which he did 52 percent and i could see why people would think that's an um that's a disappointment for him but at the end of the day, this is an unpredictable race. I mean, I, I'm not sure what many people in Massachusetts know what an auditor does. You know, we've had both of them on our show and, you know, they share um, some similar ideas. They both want to sort of step based, out. And yeah, based on what they've been talking about, I don't think they know what an auditor does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, but you have to expect that. Uh, because, you know, the auditor is a, a position where relatively little policy change, you know, especially policy that voters understand on a conservative, liberal, progressive axis can actually be affected by the auditor. Uh, I, I would say, though, returning to the convention, I, I would say the 52% is a disappointment for Chris Dempsey. Um, just you look at how the two, uh, Dempsey and Desaglio, have been running their campaigns. Uh, 
Tizagno obviously has the advantage of being an elected official, but Dempsey is largely the one that has been running as the quote unquote insider candidate. Uh, Tizaglio has been running against the state house, talking about her work with NDAs, while Dempsey has been fundraising with uh, Bob DeLeo. So, you know, I, I think given that, and obviously, you know, we've been talking about activists this whole time, the convention isn't just elites and elected officials, but given that support and given that Dempsey isn't really a concern, if some would say that Dempsey is even the more progressive candidate in the race, arguably, uh, I think that 52% is is disappointing for him. I, I think he should have cleared that by a good amount. You're probably right, but at the same time, I, I do think that, you know, again, we're, we're basing our stuff off of, you know, what we're seeing, what we're knowing, especially off of Twitter. And, you know, Twitter isn't real life, naturally. And this sort, and of course, you know, Dempsey is following the, rules of Massachusetts politics. But at the same time, I do think name recognition still plays a very important part, Jack. And, you know, Chris Dempsey, you know, I think the only thing like non-engaged voters and activists might know him for is the fact that he canceled Boston having the, uh, was it 2022 Olympics, Jesse? 2024. 2024, yeah. Yeah, so but- I will say I, that as, sorry, Jack, go ahead. No, I, I was just gonna say, I, we're not talking about uninformed voters when we're talking about the convention. We're, t- we're talking about the most informed voters in the state of Massachusetts, you know? And, and while I don't expect the average convention goer to have a detailed opinion of policy differences between Dempsey and DeZaglio, I do expect, you know, statistically, they've been contacted by one or both of these campaigns and they've heard, if, they're, if they've been interested in hearing, they've heard about the candidates and where they stand. So I, I don't think it's it's quite as much of a sharp shot in the dark as you're making it out to be. I, I think that it was an informed choice by the, the convention. I will say that I, I think um, Zaglio was one of the candidates at the convention that really closed in at the convention. She gave a great speech. Um, it, it was in, being in the room, you could feel like the energy from her speech. She had a clear message from her background um, in an underprivileged household just in the Mer- from in the Merrimack Valley growing up too, um, where she's done some awesome things um, in the state Senate. Um, and of course, the other candidate I would want to talk about is Quentin Palfrey, who yep. came into this convention. Um, we, like, I, Andrea Campbell has been way ahead in the polls. Everyone's in single digits. She's at 35%. He came in, gave a great speech, ended up winning the endorsement. So I think those, I think, Desaglio, part of her win was closing in at the convention, swaying some undecided voters and potentially even taking some Dempsey voters. Yeah, I the attorney general's race is I for me personally, it's the hardest one to follow. Um, I I know I know Andrea Campbell from of course uh, she's the district uh, fourth district of Boston's uh, city councilor. Excuse me, district four. Pardon me. Um, and she ran for Boston mayor, uh, was unsuccessful, and she has become the front runner of the attorney general's race, was endorsed by Ed Markey, uh, other big Massachusetts names, but Quentin Palfrey, who has run some previous campaigns before, is sort of gaining momentum. And it's sort of, it's sort of hard to follow because, you know, for me, I, I'm following everything else. Um, but but Jesse, you've, you've really, fall, I think, of 
or Jack, both of you, you followed these, this race better than I have. So your thoughts on it. I'll give this to you first, Jack. Well, I, I mean, I think I've already shared my thoughts oh. on the race. I mean, oh. I, I, don't, I don't know what else you'd like me to touch on here. Well, well what, what do you think? Have you noticed any differences between their policy or how, they, how they're designated themselves as a candidate? Well, yeah, of course. I mean, Dempsey has been running primarily. No, we're talking two- about we're talking about uh, Palfrey and uh, oh, uh, Campbell. I'm sorry, that was <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. Completely my bad. Um, no, you're fine. You're fine. I mean, the biggest difference that I've seen separating the candidates so far has been corporate money and outside spending. Where Palfrey and Shannon Lisreardon have taken a large, uh, a strong stance against the outside spending that has come in in favor of Andrea Campbell. Um, an outside super PAC, you know, funded in part by the Walton family, uh, you know, the, the founders and CEOs of Walmart. Uh, and obviously that's a message that plays super well, I think, in any Democratic primary these days when, you know, the, the view on Citizens United and super PACs has become uh, so negative in this electorate, but also in the attorney general's race, because, you know, I mean, Mara Healy, just look at her. She casts herself as the people's lawyer fighting against big pharma, against special interests. I think there's a really valid attack that Paul Free and Liz Rudin have there where you can't, you don't want an attorney general that takes that money, that takes that special interest money, even if it is, you know, quote unquote, no strings attached. But other than that, I mean, the attorney general uh, is at least in name only an apolitical tool. Uh, so I, I don't think that there's too much distinction that three Democrats can draw, you know, it's just, uh, I would also say that Liz Reardon is drawing very heavily on her time as a labor, um, a labor attorney. But other than that, it's really special interest money is the only way that they've been able to create distinction so far, I think. And I, I think it's worked pretty well. Jesse, your thoughts? I think Jack summed it up pretty well. I think um, one of the biggest points Palfrey made uh, in his speech was that we can't have someone who's an attorney general who might have to recuse themselves um, on a big case involving the Walton family or involving charter schools, which obviously um, charter school promoters have been giving a lot, lot of money to Andrea Campbell through super PACs when she ran for mayor and now when she's running for attorney general. So, but that message plays well to activists. Does it play well um, to a general electorate in the Democratic primary, I think it does, but isn't enough to bring Palfrey over the top or Miss Reardon over the top. Um, I think that remains to be seen. And I think, oh, um, go ahead, Jack. Go ahead. I think the most interesting thing in this primary will be whether or not Shannon Liz Reardon drops out before primary day. Uh, because no, and, and I don't mean that as a knock on her. I think she could, I think I see a situation in which she comes in second place but I don't see a position where she comes in first place. And I think consolidating that Liz Reardon, Quentin Palfrey vote is the only realistic way that, uh, that anti-Campbell voters have of, of stopping Andrea Campbell on the ballot. Yeah, and she did do that um, when she ran for Senate in 2020 to clear mm-hmm. the way for Ed Markey. So I think she has the history of that. Uh, and I think you're right. Maybe she'll see um, that for a progressive to win, she just has to bow out. Mm-hmm. And finally, the last race we're going to talk about today before briefly touching upon the GOP uh, convention is, of course, the Secretary of State or Secretary of Commonwealth race between uh, current incumbent Bill Galvin and Tanisha Sullivan. 
And of course, Sullivan won by a 62 to 38 margin uh, in the, in the, uh, uh, at the convention, there you go. And now this has happened before folks. Um, Josh Zakim ran, uh, got about- Zakim. Zakim. Zakim Bridge, man. Zakim Bridge. <laughs> I'm just gonna go cry now. Um, so anyways, uh, Josh Zakim, won about 55% back in 2018, but got crushed by Galvin in the general election. Um, I personally see the same thing happening here once again. Bill Galvin is a well-known uh, name, uh, an institution almost at this point, and Massachusetts loves its institutions. They're not known for really flipping, changing the status quo unless there is a real need to do it or a real want and desire to do it. Yeah. Um... You know, one, one of the funny anecdotes coming out of this convention um, is probably that uh, weeks before the convention, Bill Galvin sent out an email saying that I will be at the convention because of COVID. I hope to meet everyone virtually, stuff like that. Lo and behold, I'm sitting in my seat at the convention. I look to my side and Bill Galvin is standing <laughs> next to me, shaking hands with people. I have a theory about that one. I, I have a sneaky theory. Go ahead. Go ahead. And so, I mean, obviously no politician writes their own emails, but I, I think that's especially true of Bill Galvin. Um, and I, I think that Bill Galvin is definitely the kind of guy who probably enjoys going to the convention every four years uh, and seeing a bunch of old people who he's known for the past 30 when he's been in office. But also, I think the writers of the email kind of wanted to add in the COVID message as like a cheap ploy for remote voters. Because think about it. Think about it. If you're a, if you're a remote voter on Bill Galvin's email list, like you know, if you if you're a delegate but you're not going to the convention in person, chances are you're not gonna know that Bill Galvin was there in yeah. like shaking shaking hands in the audience. So you're you're probably thinking you read the email, you think to yourself, man. I'm glad that Bill Galvin's a COVID conscious guy like me. <laughs> and, you know, you're, you're walking away. And if, if you read that email and you think, man, Bill Galvin's a schmuck, COVID's over, you change your mind when you go to the convention and you see him shaking hands. I mean, I, I, I think it's the most ingenious political move that, that's been made so far this cycle. I, that's just that's just ultimate voter outreach right there. That is the like <laughs> casting the net wide and far. Now, like, and if, if Bill Galvin could play 3D chess like that, he's not even playing 3D chess. He's playing 5D backgammon at this point. Like, that's that's I, I, you know, my cynical view is that um, his people and himself thought they were going to lose very badly at the convention, and um, he had to show up to narrow the gap a little. Obviously, to narrow it much, and, and didn't he perform worse? Been extremely embarrassing. Yeah. That that's basically but of it. Course, not yeah, many people pay attention to the convention, which is an argument that um, supporters of Bill Galvin would make if they hear me saying this. So just just putting that out there. Let's move on to the Republicans. Yes. So not a lot to talk about. Well, okay, there was one thing to talk about with the Republicans, but we're not going to talk about it unless we get banned. Um, you know, Chris, um, Jeff Deal uh, won the convention handily. Really leaned into that. Uh, uh, national rhetoric that you see talked about securing the border and me and every other political reporter from Massachusetts made the same, oh, we got to protect from ourselves from Rhode Island joke. Um, but at the end of the day, it, it just sort of is parallel to what's going on with the National Republic or the Massachusetts Republican Party. Um, Chris Doherty and his, um, his uh, Lieutenant Governor of Choice uh, did very well 
for, for what they did, you know, about 29 to 30%, but still not enough to close the gap. Um, so yeah, I, I, it's very much, it's almost similar to what happened with Healy and uh, Chang Diaz. I think a lot of people look at um, Jeff Deal and think, why, why is he saying all this? What, doesn't this dude want to get elected? And the answer to that is no. There's been a fight in the Republican party between one group that wants to get elected, Charlie Baker, they run as moderates, Bill Weld, those old people. And then there's a new group led by people like Jeff Deal, Jim Lyons, who say, if we abandon our Republican values, why are we running at all? So he's running as a true Trump Republican, saying the exact things Trump would say, maybe a little bit less crass than Trump. His tweets are a little bit more civil. But you know, at the end of the day, he's running as a true Trump Republican, not because he thinks he could win, but because, you know, that's the side of the Republican Party that's winning. In right. Massachusetts. And, you know, it, it's interesting because there have been rumors um, and Trump has said this on, I believe, Howie Carr, that he's coming up to Massachusetts to do a rally for. Uh, now, first of all, I don't believe that. At OK, all. he's a liar. He's not. I know. I mean, tell me something I don't know. But. You know, for me, I'm asking two questions. One, where would he get the permit to do it? Um, probably Lowell again, like he did uh, that first time. And two, uh, would how would Deal feel? Like he's already in a bad spot. This would make it worse. Uh, I mean, I, I don't really think that's a relevant discussion. I, I Deal clearly doesn't have much of a say in the matter because, I, I mean, if I were Jeff Deal, I wouldn't want the Trump endorsement, but I, I have a feeling you can't exactly say no, like, thanks, but no thanks, Mr. President. <laughs> um, but uh, ultimately, whether or not deal ends up at 35% or 29% doesn't matter. And, and that's the difference that, that Trump coming to Massachusetts hypothetically would make. But I mean, there's no chance. I think there's enough people in Trump's circle that could say that's not going to do him any favors that would hopefully make him back down. But and, I mean, who cares? Right. I mean, that, and, and, this, and this rally would clearly be hosted at an Ernie Bach Jr. dealership. That, a funny story. That was his first rally. Like, aside, obviously, you know, like the first, the whole coming down the elevator thing. But like his first real stop, it was here in Norwood. Like that was one of his first stops <laughs> at the at the Bach, at the Bach Auto Collision Center. Man, um, if, if Trump comes to Massachusetts, the protests are going to be insane. Yeah, I mean. He doesn't go to New York anymore unless he's like picking stuff up from Trump Tower. Um, you know, there's only certain, I mean, obviously he, I, but you know what, unless he comes, we'll talk about that when the, when the time comes, but right now time's running out, unfortunately. So I want to say thank you both Jesse and Jack. And I also want to thank, I want to give a big shout out to Logan. who wasn't here today. Uh, my man's going to Brown. Uh, and I want to say congratulations to that. Uh, doing great. And thank you all for listening to the Cod Cabin. And who knows, maybe we'll have some guests on coming on soon. But as for now, I'm Adam Bass. Thank you for joining us and good night.